thesis, the final hurdle. These are the continuing trials of the Arts Union Science Podcast, our ongoing thesis project to explore the six original Star Trek films, to seek out new insights through the eyes of a novice viewer, to boldly go where many have gone before, but not maybe in the exact same way. of the Arts Union Science Theses. Welcome back to the thesis. Thesis? Thesis? I swear that I actually do have my own thesis. It's actually the microphone is sitting on it right now. Um, but I would like you to welcome you all to the thesis that intends to analyze the original Star Trek movies the way others analyze science. Today we continue our intrepid trek across the cinematic stars with the very first Star Trek motion picture to have Leonard Nimoy as a director. The title is Star Trek The Search for Spock and believe it or not this is actually one of my favorites when I was a kid. What does it say about me when I was young? I guess we'll have to wait and see. All right. I, as always, am your thesis supervisor, Tyler D.R. Vance, and I am joined by project lead and verified green-blooded son of a expletive, Daniel Shep. Hey, Tyler. I'm very, very happy to be back here and talking about Star Trek again, even though it's been a little while since we saw this movie. It's, uh, it's been a tad. It's been a while. <laughs> I'm very excited to discuss it. Yeah, we watched this several months ago, mm-hmm. um, and... I think a week after we watched it, you messaged me saying, Tyler, I've forgotten almost everything about Search for Spock. Yeah. So did you have to go back and do a little bit of prep before you came uh, came to this here defense? Yeah. So I was talking with Aditi about what the movie was about, and she wasn't terribly helpful, even though she was there watching it uh, while she was working. She did have one uh, comment, which was, oh, Kirk had that awful fight with that thing. And that was all that I got. So I had to try to piece together a plot from my memory, which I'll tell you later. Um, and then I had to reread the synopsis and watch a whole bunch of scenes again before coming for this. So I, but it did all come flooding back. Well, that's fair. I think this is actually maybe the closest we can get to the actual act of writing a thesis where you did something years ago, just years ago. And then now it's time for the like uh, chickens to come home to roost and you're looking back at your old notes which you did not take. So it's pretty much just a bunch of blank pages with the date and then maybe a subheading like cloning, underline, nothing. And you're like, past self, why wouldn't you just... (laughs) I'm feeling very attacked right now. (laughs) I'm sweating a little bit with you describing this and and, and it feels very personal. It It is personal, but not directed at you. This is definitely me exercising my own demons. Um... Which I do on this podcast quite frequently, so mm-hmm. our, they are, they are intrepid audience will know such things. Are you ready to get into our actual discussion on this here movie? Let's go for it. All right. So we're going to start with the introduction, because all theses also have to have an introduction. And we're going to do a little bit on objective history, subjective history, and then we're going to get our first author to tell us his version of the plot. Now, I believe this was the version of the plot that you wrote down before you did your copious amounts of makeup research. Is That's that correct. correct. So I am excited to hear what that is. <laughs> but to start, the objective history for Star Trek The Search for Spock is that it was greenlit just three days after the Wrath of Khan premiered, likely due to Michael Eisner's healthy love 
of the bottom line. Um, the schedule and budget for the third movie was actually a little bit more forgiving than its predecessor, uh, meaning that the filmmakers were able to take their time, work at performing some real uh, world building. So they had new ships, new languages, and, you know, actual props that weren't just stolen off the set of other things that they were going around. Uh, while getting Leonard Nimoy to partake in the second film, The Wrath of Khan, was actually a difficult endeavor that included literal begging on one's knees from one of the studio executives. Uh, his participation in the third film was actually secured by a much less demeaning thing, which is effectively, would you like to direct this film? Um, and for his first directing effort at a big, large studio, uh, he actually did quite well. Search for Spock earned around $200 million worldwide at the box office off a budget of just $16 million, which if my math serves right, is actually a pretty good return. Um, although we were talking earlier today and apparently my math skills are not nearly as good as I thought. It's like, um, maybe we'll post the particular brain teaser that Dan put to me and I adequately failed as like uh, on our any one of our social media platforms of which there was one, Facebook. Um, but at the end of the last episode, I did refer to Star Trek 3 as a kind of a coin flip amongst fans, implying something resembling like a 50-50 split between like great and bad. It was actually more of a 50-50 split between mild praise and middling disdain. Um, so it would be interesting to see where you fall on this. Uh, but before we get into that, I want to know about your actual subjective history with this. Did you know anything about this movie going in? Well, Wrath of Khan has kind of like a legacy that has permeated past just Trekkie, like Trekkies or Trekkers, whoever wants to be called such things. Um, what did you know about Search for Spock before this? So as you say, when I watched Star Trek The Motion Picture, I knew some stuff about it. I knew it had somewhat of an infamous reputation. <laughs> um, and of course, Wrath of Khan had its own um, its own legacy, as you say. And I knew much less about The Search for Spock. So I, I knew that The Search for Spock formed roughly the middle of a trilogy that began with Wrath of Khan and ending with a voyage home. So Spock dies, Spock returns, and then presumably they go home. So... Basically, I, I think this is the one I knew the least about of any of them. Uh, so one, boring, long, and heavy on special effects is mm -hmm. what I knew. Yep. Two, exciting, tense, mm -hmm. and con. <laughs> Three, four, <laughs> is the one with the whales. Yep. Five, oh God, no. And then six is the best one for, <laughs> for you. <laughs> oh, that that is a that is a high mark to set for the the sixth one. I hope that it uh, lives up to it. Most people would disagree. I do not. Um, but yeah, so it is true. Search for Spock is kind of other than is it despite the fact that there are some really like pivotal scenes in this that I feel are like really beloved by Star Trek fans. It is not well known outside of the uh, the actual like really intense stuff. And also considering that it did well, it made like as much money as Wrath of Khan. So like, it's not like no one saw it. The same number of people saw it, but there is just not as much parodied about it. There's not as much, it's like kind of like beloved. Like, I think they go through it. Um, maybe that has something to do with the fact that most people can't remember what the heck happened in this movie. So would you like to regale us with your version of what the heck happened in Search for Spock? Yeah, so I wrote this down earlier today and this is what I have. Tyler, Spock is dead. <laughs> In case you forgot, we'll show you again. Remember that? When, remember when we shot Spock's body into space in some sort of tube? That'll be important later, so let's show it to you. Also, the USS Enterprise is looking really beat up because of that whole con situation. So when they return to their star base, 
the experts say that the Enterprise is going to be put out of commission. Worry not, they have a Starfleet uh, that has an awesome new ship that they poured a ton of resources into to replace it. It's called the Excelsior. Spock's dad shows up and he's grieving and also pissed off that they shot Spock's body into space in some sort of tube. Because anybody who knows anything about Vulcans know that they have a ceremony for everything. And that includes a rite of passage and funeral. And I get the sense that most of the scenes on Vulcan will be some sort of ceremony moving forward, but we'll see if that's the case. Spock Sr. then mind, mind melds with Kirk and realizes that he didn't shoot him into space in a tube with any nefarious purpose, but it just seemed right at the time. Or maybe it's some sort of traditional spaceship burial. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, some Klingons are trying to get their hands on the secret of the Genesis Project, having figured out it has great destructive potential. They're speaking a new language. Uh, Muddy, who is what I'll call the head of the Klingon unit, backstabs his co-worker, showing the audience that he's evil, even by Klingon standards. They start to investigate the Genesis planet. Kirk finds out somehow that Spock's tube body is on the Genesis planet, and they want to retrieve it for the burial rites. In typical Kirk fashion, he ignores the good advice of the experts who say that the Enterprise is not fit for service. He gives Scotty instructions to do six weeks of fixes in two days, and also, ha uh, and also has Scotty sabotage the Excelsior so it can't pursue them. They steal the ship, and a slow-speed chase ensues, in which the busted-up Enterprise leaves the sabotaged Excelsior in its wake. Dr. Bones is not quite feeling himself. And it seems he's struggling with having Spock's consciousness inside of him. They realize that Spock transferred his consciousness into Bones before he died. And then Bones goes back to normal. They meet up with the Klingons and trick most of them onto the Enterprise, which they've also sabotaged. And then it blows up. They go onto the Genesis planet and meet Spock, who is now back alive, first as a child, and then a teen undergoing horrible Vulcan puberty, and then finally an adult. He's aging fast as a result of the Genesis project effects, and the planet is aging fast too. The planet is unstable and will soon blow up. They all fight horribly on the planet, and Butch Marcus is killed, and all <laughs> Butch Marcus is killed with all of the important pathos of a damp fart. Kirk kills Muddy by throwing him off a cliff. They all escape back into the Klingon ship or something. Then the planet blows up. They go to Vulcan where Bones is exercised in a new Vulcan ceremony, and they put Spock's consciousness back into his body where it belongs. The end. That was actually very well done. Thank you. I, I'm quite impressed. It's like considering that after our, they are like the one week post talk, you made it sound as if like you remembered that Spock came back to life. I still hate McCoy, and that was kind of. <laughs> I mean, that's a, that's the Coles Notes version. Um, I I had to really scrape the the back of the old uh, temporal lobe there to <laughs> to try to trudge up <laughs> what was in here. That's fair. That's fair. It's it's a slippery movie in the way that like I feel like it has a pretty memorable first act and a pretty memorable uh, like last act, and then like everything in the middle is just kind of like, and then they were on a ship for a while. Other people were on a planet for a while. That's all I got. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I got the sense, looking back on this movie, that they had an idea about bringing Spock back. And they were like, okay, well, Spock died, um, but there's this thing that grants life. So what if he went there and came back? And then we'd be able to make more movies, and uh, Spock would be alive again, which would be great. Yeah. But that's not enough for a whole movie. So they needed to have some sort of other villain plot. And so they made this villain who also wants Genesis uh, yeah. to kill people. Mm -hmm. And then um, that's what they ended up going with as a subplot. But he feels more like a subplot to me, in memory at least, than than the actual main thrust of the movie. Yeah, yeah, I would say that's fair. It's like um, definitely when you hear about the making of this film, it seems like way less tum like tumultuous than the past one. And 
it feels like there should have been plenty of time for them to like rewrite a script or something like that. But it seems very much so that like they had a, they had a script by Harv Bennett that kind of came out real quick and they just kind of started rolling with that. And I'm not really sure how many other passes they took of it. Hmm. Um, it's also possible that like, unlike Nicholas Mayer, who was like a very, the director of Rathacon, who's a very strong willed kind of like writer into and of himself. Milan Nimoy might've been a little bit more hands-off with the script in that way. He's very much more like an actor's director and he really likes working with the actors and everything else outside of that seems like it was kind of handled by like the people who knew how to do those things more, which I think is kind of like a good mark for a new director to kind of like trust in those side of type of things. But it also means that unlike Wrath of Khan, you don't really have that same authorial intent that you kind of get is like that from a, from a Nicholas Mayer movie. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I would feel like this sort of feels more like um, like a script that that does have competing elements within it that mm. I would hope if it came from one mind would be more unified mm. um, as opposed to feeling I don't I don't mean to say that it feels like it's made by committee but mm. but it doesn't feel like it has one unified um, mm. story line or through line um, yeah. in the same way that I would have hoped. Yeah, if to me it kind of sounds like is like. Um people were interested again as in like the studio executives after the success of the last one suddenly were interested again in star trek and being involved in the making of star trek and therefore may had more notes that might have been incorporated mm. um you always get that funny thing right that, like the first one comes out everything's great the studio executives come in and it's like yeah you did so good on that first one now allow me to <laughs> if i may <laughs> and they go forward from there um, we can talk more about that when we get into the actual like meat and potatoes of this thing. But first, we have to get into our materials and methods, or materials and methodologies, so that, as I have it written down here, because I apparently wanted to be fancy for this mm, one. It does sound fancy. It does sound much more fancy. Um, so way back when we did our first episode, which seems like a year ago, um, which for most of you who are listening will have just dropped. So when you hear this episode, it's probably dropped months ago. And so time is a void. Um, anyway, like we did describe in that first one our kind of general ideas of how we'd be watching these movies more frequently. But much like The Wrath of Khan, where things got switched up because Dan came to my place and we watched it there, we then had a kind of exchange in the other direction where I went to your place and we were able to watch The Search for Spock with is it your lovely wife working in the meanwhile in the background is like um and occasionally is like uh i think paying attention to some things that were happening she was very kind to lie to me and say that she is like she thought it was okay afterwards i think she thought it was okay well i think everybody thinks it's okay i think no one has strong opinions one way or another i might be the only one in the world <laughs> but um yeah so very similar to the past but we were basically it's like is like in your abode the, your humble abode, like watching it like, together. Um, and I had a great time. It oh, was good. A lot of fun. Yeah, I'm glad. Yeah. I mean, I, I, when I, we were talking earlier today that, you know, Tyler bought me dinner, which I thought was lovely. And I, I was like, well, I, I think I should, you know, it doesn't, it's not really fair. And, and you said, well, when we watched the movie at my place, then, then you bought me dinner or made me dinner. And yeah. I don't remember what we had. What I do remember was that I made you a drink that I apparently was too strong and, and I had to drink because, you were driving and and so that might be why my summary sort of trails off near the end and, and, and sort of loses a lot of detail yes i remember because you it's like it was a, i think it was a gin and tonic it was and it was like the first one was, it was really, they were both good but the first one was really good i'm like oh that's great and i like drinking it haphazardly and i'm thinking oh yeah i need to drive after this so i had to really slow down and when the second one came out i'm like 
I don't think I can do it. I, I have to I go to the that. bank today. I, I need to go to the bank. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. But yeah, so if you're interested in how to watch these movies properly, you should listen to the very first episode of this, is like of this slew of fee-heep. And then you can basically listen to Dan's specific it's like idea that is like of... Um, what has like and that's pretty much how we watched it it was a good time i was like i had a very good time i really missed watching movies in person so this is uh this is a fun time to be mm-hmm. had for sure i've always wanted to watch this movie this movie specifically in a large theater because i think it has some scenes in it that would actually play really well and like to a crowd especially a crowd of people who really enjoy star trek um so maybe someday i'll get to do that but this was the next best thing <laughs> i hope you get that dream at some point thank you i do too I hope all my dreams come true. Um, so as a following that, we are now going to go into the actual, what we call the figures. So these are in the results section where a figure is kind of a pictorial representation that kind of condenses the data together. And we are using these as examples of ways to center our discussion on a couple of major points. And the first figure that we have here is something that I call spikes of greatness. Um, so a long while ago, is like back when I was a grad student with more well, I shouldn't say I had more free time on my hands, but I was, was like, I was more flippant with my nighttime hours, I would say, than I am now. Um, I would do this thing where I would go out with friends to bars and stuff like that, and then I would come home slightly pissedly, and I would be sit down, and I wouldn't want to go to sleep yet, quite yet. So I think, I'll watch a movie, but I don't want to watch something that like I really wanted to see and I want to put a lot of attention into. So I want to watch either something that I've seen a million times or something that I've, like, always meant to watch but really only out of kind of some like perverse curiosity so that's how i ended up watching uh, independence day insurrection resurgence what was the what was the was like the one sent the one word like nonsense that came after the colon for the independence day sequel nobody knows nobody knows but no one cares um but it's like uh search for spock one time was one such movie and so i sat down slightly physically to watch it and i was struck by the fact that there are just these certain scenes that are so good in my eyes. And then the rest is just kind of like mostly baseline, like was barely registering in my like inebriated state. Uh, And so I'm calling this Spice of Greatness. And I think the reason why I love this movie so much when I was a kid, because I used to do this thing called play and watch, where effectively play with toys during the boring stuff and then tune back in. And I think this one has two special scenes. Before I say what my two scenes are, I want to know is like, do you agree that these two scenes I'm going to bring up are actually like the kind of spikes of greatness that exist in this in this movie? Do you have differing thoughts on such things? I don't want to prescribe to you how you feel on something. I just watched The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent and I realized the difficulty that can be happening with doing such things. I think that these were two of the best scenes in the movie. I, I would agree with mm-hmm. that, certainly. And they were ones that stuck out to me in mm-hmm. my memory. That's good. When I was trying to trudge it up. That's good. <laughs> I think that greatness is in the eye of the beholder, maybe. <laughs> but I think they're certainly very good. Okay. You know, I think I think what you're going for is something like what Howard Hawks said. Howard Hawks said, you know, a, a, like a good movie is three great scenes and no bad ones. Hmm? And that seems like this movie fits the bill. It does kind of, right? But what's the third one? There, Well, two great scenes. The right? two great scenes and no bad ones. Yeah. Yeah. So the two scenes that I have in mind is like, which I'd like to discuss a little bit as uh, like in detail would be the stealing of the enterprise. There's like, that takes place kind of like at the, I guess like it would be like the end of the first act sort of thing. It's like, and the, the destruction of the enterprise, which takes place at the end of the second act and kind of going into the third. Um, it's like, in terms of like the enterprise as a ship, I don't think we've taught, we've 
despite the fact that we did watch the motion picture where the, there was a camera on that thing for probably like at least 75% of the screen time, oh. um, we haven't really talked about the ship a whole lot in terms of its design. It's a very iconic design with like the weird saucer section and the fun little wings that come off called nacelles. Um, I like love this ship. I especially, especially love this model of the ship, what they call the Enterprise Refit. Because it's the original one, it's like, and it's been, but it's been refitted for the motion picture. And I think that it's never really been photographed better than it was, like, no Enterprise has been photographed better than it was in the first three Star Trek movies. Like, obviously, the motion picture maybe got a little bit borderline pornographic with its, its like, enjoyment of photographing the Enterprise. But I feel like this one also does a really great job of kind of, like, showing the ship from different angles that you don't usually see. And it's mostly in this kind of like stealing of the enterprise sequence where you really get to see it like in as like a bunch of different uh, contexts going through. Do you have any strong feelings about this? I know it's like, it's an iconic ship, so you probably knew what it looked like beforehand, but it's like, do you, it was like, do you have any feelings on the model work in one way or another? I mean, I don't really have a lot of expertise or knowledge about the way that these shots tend to be constructed and the way that miniatures work in these movies mm. and how it would compare to other miniature work. Mm. Um, I think that the design is is really interesting and it's something that is certainly iconic um because you know when you think about a spaceship it's not necessarily the first thing that you think of right it's a, like it's a very interesting um look to a ship and it's, it's so instantly recognizable and yep. instantly star trek but beyond that i don't really have very strong opinions about how mm -hmm. it was shot here from model work perspective mm. i think from a general perspective i think that the way that it's shot and especially the sort of very slow moving scenes and sense of tension that mm -hmm. gives it um, is really powerful. And I think yeah. it works beautifully with the music. I think the music in this scene does so much heavy lifting. James Horner just took this film over his shoulder and walked it across the finish line. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Through those slow opening space doors, walked right out with it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it works great. And I think, again, this isn't specifically about miniature, but just in terms of angle and in mm -hmm. terms of perspective. Um, really what you have in this scene is you have like shots from the inside of the bridge. Mm -hmm. Is that the call? Yep. That's bridge? what we call it. Okay. Thank you. Uh, that's a faster clap than I was expecting. <laughs> um, inside of the bridge of the enterprise and the inside of the bridge of the Excelsior and yep. then external shots of both the ships. And there's one external shot I really love, which mm -hmm. is shown from the inside of the window from the uh, star base. With as the janitor. Some... <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I love and, that shot. And you get that, grand sense of scale and yeah. you recognize that even though this thing is moving very slowly like the sense of momentum and the sense of grandiosity that that lends it is yeah. just huge i think it's wonderful mm -hmm. yeah what i love about that shot is it's actually a mirror shot of when the enterprise enters the the, the space dock for the first time because ah. when when this enterprise enters there's this wonderful shot of the, the enterprise entering into that same lounge going through this like on the windows and but it's full of people it's full of like people because it's during the day they're having like drinks and stuff like that and everyone stops talking and they look at the enterprise because of all the battle damage it has like just ripped along the side of it and everyone's just kind of like gawking at it like it dumbstruck and they have a close-up of an actress who was actually and it was like a character from the original series as she like slowly shakes her head and kind of like oh my god like what did they how did they get out of it like was like that sort of like feeling of kind of appreciation but also the way that like when a friend is telling a story about how like they did this stupid thing that you knew like and you just kind of like have to shake your head like of course you did that and then you got out alive somehow sort of thing and so that shot is like showing casing the enterprise coming in and everyone's taking note everyone's like paying respect everyone's noticing this like legend kind of show up in space dock 
as opposed to when it's leaving and it's just this one guy they're leaving the dead of night it's like and it's just this one janitor who's doing his job and then suddenly looks up and is like what the it's like and in the original storyboards they actually have a close-up on the janitor's face like reacting to this is like leaving which would either even further mirror the original shot that comes in which they cut i think rightly for just like the the spectacle of it just being able to see it it's like, i agree it's a beautiful shot i do love that one yeah mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I think, I think the scene actually works beautifully. I think it's, I think it's a very, very good scene. Yeah. And it's like, I love the, um, the, the editing I think is fantastic of being able to, as you said, going between these different shots, but then like catching the reactions from each of these, like the, um, like the crew members that are inside the bridge, some really great comedic moments of like the space, the space doors opening where there's this great moment where Kirk goes up to Scotty and goes, and now mr scott he goes sir it's like the doors are like, yeah i've been working on them like he's like he's like <laughs> it's like kirk just assuming that scotty would just be able to open it like that but actually like scotty's been working on it the whole time and that adds the tension as, as they're approaching it and the doors are not opening and then finally when they do open and they're getting closer and it's just like sulu whose face is pretty impassive except for the sudden like widening of the eyes like <laughs> cut that a little close <laughs> yeah saying like i don't want to question your authority right now but i am very nervous i would really like to stop <laughs> oh yeah there's a it's like that whole that whole portion is just it's like, I, I love that it's like that scene for that reason it's like that reason amongst others yeah i think that um you know the editing between the the sort of close-ups and medium shots with the two bridges and then mm-hmm. um and then all the sort of wide grandiose shots mm. works really, really well to build tension because you recognize this sort of this this chase and that, you know, you think they're going to get away. But also this idea that, um, you know, they're taking this step that there's no turning back yeah. from here point from this point. Right. Um, and there's this line that the other jag of a captain says, who says, if you do this, you'll never sit in the captain's chair again, which nobody really believes. Of course, Kirk's <laughs> going to get away with it because he's slimy as all get out. Um, but uh but yeah, it's like this sort of sense that you're like, okay, this is like real consequence yeah. to what we're doing right now. Um, and it sort of goes along with the feeling of consequence and the feeling yeah. of grandiosity and the movement of this behemoth. And the my favorite part of that line read is that they start this, the, the line read on the captain from the Excelsior. So you can see him hit the button and say, Kirk, and so you know who's speaking. And then they switch to just Shatner's face as he's sitting down in the seat with his look of pure determination as he hears, like, you do this, you never sit in the captain's chair again. This next one is warp speed, like, go. Like, no, no moment. It's like, and uh, I saw someone, I was, after I watched this this clip on YouTube, I was making the uh, horrendous choice of looking through the comments, which actually worked out pretty well this time because the Star Trek people were just in there and in, in, en masse, like, loving on the scene. And it was, it was quite nice to read. But there was one thing that someone said about basically, that they like, they loved that because in their eyes, it's like, it doesn't even matter. Like, he's not even thinking about this. He's just kind of going. In my eyes, I love that even more because focusing on him in during that line read kind of showcases that those things are probably on his mind. He's a very career-minded individual. He has always been. And so, like, to just kind of see that there is no hesitation, but the look on his face, I think Shatner does actually a great job of kind of, like, being that strange combination of, like, like a kind of like unreadable in such a way that you can read whatever you want into, like, the face that he's got on the other side. Mm-hmm. I, I have a question about this scene. Uh-oh. How, how many people does it take to run the Enterprise? Okay, so this is a great question. So it's like um, one that I don't have a, an exact answer to, but it's like the Enterprise does require a large crew complement generally in order to be able to run. Um, the Enterprise in this case has, is, like, is under a sense of automation with like an emergency automation that allows it to basically do its, its basic functions without uh, it's like a crew operating. Um, 
which later on is revealed in the way that Kirk like, uh, overestimates what the automation is capable of doing, because when they go into combat and then try to start up the shields, the shields won't run. Something that is like that should have been easily fixable if there was a crew of people to be able to like diagnose the problem, figure out what's going on, get everything running. But clearly with just, what is it, four people on the bridge, one of who is pretty much useless in the way of McCoy, it's like, um, it's like it is effectively just, five people on the bridge, I suppose. It is effectively just, if anything goes wrong, there is nothing to be done to be able to fix it. <laughs> I, I wonder, I mean, of course, in this case, they only have five people running the ship. Yeah. Um, before they leave, mm-hmm. you know, they thank Scotty. They had help from Uhura. They yeah. thank Scotty and, and Sulu and Chekhov and they say, okay, well, thank you for getting us this far. I can't ask you to go any further yeah. than this. Like, you're good to go and we'll take it from here. And of course, they're like, no, we're going um, uh, down with the captain, I guess. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But uh, but yeah, basically like we're gonna continue to to work on this because we're in on in 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 on this the same way that you are. Yeah. Um. So presumably Kirk was ready to run the Enterprise with Bones and himself, and then immediately Bones stands there and just complains. <laughs> Kirk sits there and gives orders, and everybody else does the the only work of running the ship. So presumably three people are needed to run this ship. They look like they're doing something that's needed to do this, including opening the doors. I would have loved to see this scene. It was just Kirk and Bones trying to run this ship. <laughs> I would I would love to see that and be like, Bones, open the doors. And he's like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> God damn it, Jim, I'm a doctor, not a magic door opener. <laughs> yeah, he's just going to say, it's like, oh, you're just going to walk through them? Man, fuck off. Like, God, I hate this guy. Like, oh, nice of you to tell me that you disabled the Excelsior. Oh my God, this freaking asshole. I I do love that. I do love that because obviously Kirk is really banking on the fact that they're all going to say that they're going to come. Um, and it's like, and, but I do, there is something that I really love about the idea, the idea of a captain. It's kind of ludicrous that the captain is always the main character because they are generally the one that is doing the least amount of actual, like cinematically interesting. It's like stuff. They are not running around doing things. They are not pressing buttons. They're the one like yelling, yelling stuff. And having a crew of only four means that the captain is somewhat useless in a way because the vast majority of what the captain does is coordinating between all the different like portions of the ship. If there's only four people and they're all within earshot, it's very like it's also great when it's like when uh, I love their kind of like fascination with protocol and the way that there's a scene where the the they think they're about to be attacked. So it's like Kirk calls for like battle stations and red alerts, and it's kind of like. Why do you need the red alert system? Everyone knows that we're in trouble here. <laughs> There's yeah. nobody else around. But you know, it's like you're just so trained to do these things. It just mm-hmm. kind of works. I, I, you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, I mean, Kirk is definitely more useless in the scene. But you know, who's really useless in the scene is freaking Bones. I, I, I hate to keep harping on this, but when I watched Star Trek: The Motion Picture, I was convinced that Bones's character had no place in that movie. And then watching Search for Spock. Bones' main role is as a conduit for someone else's character, which is perhaps his best role so far. <laughs> I, I want to push back on this, but it's like watching these movies through your eyes have really showcased to me the kind of like the paucity of useful things that Bones is able to do. I always knew that this was a problem in the movies, but it just kind of like I kind of like went through it because I do have a soft spot for him because of the uh, the show. But even the show, looking back on it, like. Yeah, it's like a lot of the things that he says are outright offensive, if not just like kind of like aggravating and ter- it's like and terrible. But there is something like uh, that I really enjoy just about the crotchetiness of it. As like as I've gotten older, 
I have become more and more of a fan of incredibly crotchety characters. There was something I used to say all the time about my journey with the Winnie the Pooh characters. That was when I was young, I loved Tigger. And then I became a, as like a moody teenager and I loved Eeyore. And now I have a strong soft spot for Rabbit because damn it, if he weren't like the only member of like the only adult member of an otherwise childish crew is like of that. And you're just trying to garden for God's sakes. <laughs> <laughs> and there's something that is like that I love about McCoy about he is the only one that calls out Kirk on his shit. He's the only one that is flabbergasted that they're not dying as they all the time. And in a lot of ways, he's the only one that has a relationship with Kirk that is actually like um, pretty much unmarred by the chain of command. Like mm. not at all. Like it's like even Spock, who they are very close. He's like Spock is so was like beholden to Starfleet regulations that there's no way that he would call him out on anything. The other people, they like they have admiration for him. There, it's hard to call them friends. It's like I just it. You need someone around you that's going to be able to point out when you're being an asshole. It's like, and I think that I do appreciate that uh, the McCoy does that. It'd be nice if someone was doing it for McCoy more frequently. Yeah, I think he could probably use it. <laughs> I agree. I agree. <laughs> it's it's funny to think of of moody teenage Tyler uh, being uh, uh, inspired by Eeyore. <laughs> that is the most adorable teenage angst uh, conduit that I've it's, heard. It's just like, you know, when you're sitting there and you're like getting home from your, it's like from your long day of like the odorous task of going to high school and you have all this homework that has no real consequences, like uh, waiting before you and you just want to be watching TV and you're just sitting there staring at the ground and then your parents come home and they say, how was your day? And you just respond, thanks for noticing. Like that's, you know, that's as we all did. Sure, sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, there is one more thing I want to say on the on the scene before we move on. It's not actually about the scene. It's actually an apology to someone out there. Her name is Marina. She's been a first author on this as a podcast before, and one of her favorite movies is The Da Vinci Code, starring Tom Hanks. Um, we watched this movie as part of the Kingston Movie Club under her behest. It was a wonderful night because she uh, she like knew that none of us were very jazzed about it, so she had us all over to her house. She like made, like got a bunch of like baked goods from Panchancho, which is like a wonderful Kingston bakery. Is like a, like is like a macarons, all this like great food. It was fantastic. One of the best nights of watching movies I've had in a long time. I hated the movie, um, and I mocked her incessantly for an action scene that takes place in this, where effectively the car chase is just Tom Hanks driving backwards down a hill. And then beating a beating a light so that the other people can't follow him, and then he drives away, and it's like practically in slow motion, like it's like without being in slow motion, like he's driving so slow down this hill. And I mocked her incessantly. I'm like, this is the action scene we're looking at. I was watching this scene of these two large ships slowly back up out of some doors, and caught myself in the middle thinking this is one of the best action scenes of all time, thinking like. Oh no! <laughs> I've become the very thing I swore to destroy. <laughs> uh, sorry, Marina. So I apologize to Marina, but I won't take back what I said, and I still love the scene anyway. Um, the next thing that I want to talk about is the destruction of the Enterprise. Um, the, what I would call like the first of many, because after this, every Star Trek series has to have a movie where they destroy the Enterprise. Um, it was in. It happened in the Next Generation movies. It happened in the new Star Trek movies. Um, so it's like, and there's also a wonderful, it's like a tradition of the uh, trailer houses giving away that the Enterprise blows up in the trailer for the movie. 
if you ever watch the original theatrical trailer for Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock, they show the scene of the Enterprise blowing up in the trailer. Like, that's the stupidest shit I've seen since the Terminator 2 release revealed that Arnold Schwarzenegger was a good guy in it, and James Cameron almost throttled somebody. Um, why would you do that? <laughs> well, you know what? It, it worked. It got butts in the seats, and this thing made $200 million. I guess so. It's like... Um, so I remember watching the scene with you, and for me, I love this scene. Like this scene, I find it so full of tension. And it's like in such a beautiful imagery of the actual explosion, and I actually find the the scene of the crew watching as the Enterprise like like kind of the orbit decays and it burns up in the atmosphere to be very powerful and moving for myself. Um, once again, going to remove myself from this conversation for a moment and take a nice swig of this wonderful like uh, spirit that you that you brought for us. Um, what, uh, what 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 are your thoughts? What do you feel? So I did not remember the scene as well uh, as I did the the chasing with the Excel steward. I mean, when I uh, thought back on the movie, um, you know, I remembered the whole uh, classic Kirk switcheroo that he did, similar to in Wrath of Khan, I must say. Yep. Um, where you know he's like, oh yeah, I'm gonna play along with you, and then oh no, oh. Uh, Sorry, you're going to be destroyed. Um, People just need to blow that ship out of the sky when they see it. Yeah, exactly. You don't talk to Kirk. Exactly. <laughs> Get you killed. Yeah, exactly. That slimy bastard. <laughs> so, um, yeah, when I, I rewatched it today, and uh, it was definitely much more powerful than I remember, I must say. Like, I think it was actually very, very well done. Um, you know, it's got this very oppressive red lighting, and it's sort of, they're putting in the self-destruct sequence. They're clustered around the computer, and they're all sort of, it, they're very slowly giving in their commands one by one because you get the sense that this is something that is very seldom if ever done. Yeah. So you need like three different people who are needing to be there to give the order. Mm -hmm. And they all seem to speak with a lot of gravity First Kirk and then Scotty and then um, Chekhov and then back to Kirk to put in the final order and password um, to actually start this thing. And you're like, okay, well you, there is really a sense of sacrifice mm -hmm. of this ship that they all have such a connection to. Um, in order to attain their goal or try to live another day. And uh, yeah, this is again an example where James Horner is really pulling things along. And the music yep. here is great. It's really, really it's good. Beautiful. And it's taking and over the scene and very, very tense. It's dissonant. And uh, yeah, it's great. There's a sense of sort of impending doom and, um, and oppressiveness, which I think is just great. Um, and, you know, they're sort of pushing in on, like, pushing in very, very gradually on the trio of them and, and you know, Chekhov as he's speaking. Um, and then the same thing, you know, they leave, the Klingons come in to search the ship and they're like, oh, it's empty. And it's just at the last second they recognize that the, mach the machine is counting down. That's the only thing that's speaking and it's about to self-destruct. And, of course, Christopher Lloyd's like, no. <laughs> and as, as again, the camera's like pushing in on this red light and the guy's just like only, only just dawning that he's about to die along yeah. with his crew. Um, and, yeah, I, I'd totally forgotten about that wide shot of them on the surface of the Genesis planet yeah. watching this thing um, crumble into the sky as it enters the orbit or enters the atmosphere. And uh, there is something that's really pretty about that image. Mm -hmm. And it is, it is something that the camera lingers long enough on their face to see their reaction no. and recognize the gravity of what they've just done. So yeah, I think I agree. It is actually a very, very good scene. Yeah. It's, so the, the effects work on it is like, it's fantastic. It was like, but like without, like, even with, without the good effects work, without all the stuff you just mentioned of like the wonderful music of like the building of tension and like the beautiful way that they, James Horner's like score brings us all the way up to the explosion and then cuts out. So we just hear the sound effect, like the Foley work for the actual like explosion. 
um, is just is great. Is like, and there's a uh, there's a shot in this that I absolutely love. It is like after the Enterprise, like a, like a, the initial explosion that takes out the bridge, they have a close up on the title, like the Enterprise name on yeah. this, on the saucer section as the metal is literally melting away to reveal like the burning frame like underneath. I just think that that is one of the coolest shots, like one of the coolest effect shots, but it just, it has so much poignancy for someone who's seen the show over and over and over again to see like just the name of it, just be actually like disintegrated away, this legacy being lost, just like as it careens out of control and towards the, uh, like the planet. It just, it's so good. I love it. Um, and I can't believe that they gave it away in the trailer. <laughs> I, so I, I remember that shot and it didn't have the poignancy for me because it didn't have the yeah. association with the USS Enterprise. Yeah. Um, but I did like the shot. And I like how it's sort of, I mean, they really don't mess around with their self-destruct sequence. It's not like they just sort of put it out of commission. Yeah. It is all these little explosions, this melting, and then the whole fucking disc just pops it off in a giant explosion. <laughs> What's great about that is that it actually makes absolutely no sense. No. It's like, um, in terms of like, this is going to be a little... This, I was about to apologize for getting nerdy on this, but if you're listening to this podcast, then you must be down for this sort of shit. But the like usually when the um the self-destruct system for is like for a starship usually means that the antimatter that is used to actually power the warp drive collides is like the containment is broken and it collides with real matter and produces like a massive explosion that should be taking place from the engines which are near the back of the ship where the nacelles run and stuff like that so the idea that the that explosion would somehow preserve that section but then explode the saucer section makes absolutely no sense but it looks amazing <laughs> and that was the reason mm. One thing I, I was sort of reminded of um, Spaceballs was uh, the password was zero 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 destruct zero I believe yeah yeah <laughs> something an idiot would put on their luggage yeah the vast is like so the majority of the password actually comes from recognition of the voice over the passcode well that's good yeah you need to have the passcode you need to have the voice. This is the passcode is actually taken directly from an episode of the original series where they did also activate this the self destruct, um, and then they like, were able to call it off at the last second. Similarly, at that stage, yeah, three people were required to give their passcode. It was, like, it was I think Kirk, Spock, and Scotty at the time. Um, but yeah, the self destruct system is also something that is used very frequently as like a last ditch resort in Star Trek. But in the episodes, it's always called off at the last second. Mm. It's like, and so I think that was also a nice thing for fans to be able to see it actually like taken to its full fruition <laughs> as it goes through. So I mean, this is the first time they've actually destroyed the Enterprise. Yeah. But how can they destroy it a second time if they've already destroyed the Enterprise? I'm pretty sure it's beyond repair at this point. It is definitely beyond repair. It's like, but the um, it's like the name of the ship carries on. So like, there will be other Enterprises. So Enterprise A through F. It's like, um, it's like, and so the end. It's like the Star Trek: The Next Generation takes place using the um, Enterprise D. So that's it because it's a hundred years in the future. Ah. It's like, um, it's like, uh, so that's how that one can also be destroyed, as well as then, of course, the J.J. Abrams alternative reality. It's like um, Star Trek uses the same Enterprise as this one in theory, um, but it blows up in Star Trek Beyond, also given away in the trailer. Um, didn't it also crash in Star Trek Into Darkness? Yeah, but it didn't explode. It was like, it was salvageable in that one. It's like uh, it's like the in Beyond it 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 was not salvageable. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there was nothing left of that <laughs> afterwards. Um, but yeah, there there is some obviously there is hamminess still in this scene, like uh, Christopher Lloyd screaming "Get out!" really loudly right into the camera, like this far away from the camera. Yeah. It's always uh, you know it's uh, it reminds me kind of like of the con esque thing from the original. Yeah. Yeah, 
And, uh, and that kind of does bring me to the, the next point, figure two, which is called villainy. Um, it's like, uh, I could have, if I really wanted to piss some people off, I could have called it a wretched hive of scum and villainy. But uh, I decided to uh, sidestep that particular uh, hornet's nest. Never shall Star Wars truly be discussed on this podcast, lest I bring the bees about. It's like, um, but last time we actually waxed poetic about Khan, who we thought was a great ham-soaked villain. I do remember was the uh, term that we decided on. Yeah, he was soaked in so much hot ham water. So much so hot good. ham water. Um, uh, but seemingly they tried to learn from this past thing, because they also had a ham-infused villain put into this movie um, with, I would say, inarguably uh, less effect. Uh, so how did you handle, uh, Muddy or, uh, is, uh, in another term, Commander Krug is like a, an alternative fact, if you will. Um, and, uh, what are your thoughts on actually the, the race of Klingons in general? Because this is really, other than a brief show up, like show in, um, the, the beginning of the motion picture, this is really the first time that we get a, a good look at this, uh, this race. Yeah. I, and first I feel like I should offer an explanation. So in October of uh, 2020, my wife and I um, went to uh, uh, Dunville, Ontario, uh, for a little uh, vacation, first vacation during COVID. Mm. And in Dunville, there's a very large statue of a mud cat, which is a type of fish, it's a type mm. of catfish. Yeah. And it looks uh, quite a bit like General Krug. <laughs> With the, uh, got the, the whiskers. Yeah, the wide forehead, it's got the whiskers, uh, and its name is Muddy, Muddy mm. the Mud Cat, which gotcha. is why I was thinking about Muddy. So that's... <laughs> It wasn't anything against Commander Krug, other than the fact I didn't know his name, which is never a good sign for a character if you can't remember their name and they're central to the story. I don't think it's ever mentioned in the actual... Uh, is it, no, wait, it is mentioned at the very beginning of his scene where he um, blows up the ship that has his uh, co-worker on it. Oh, very good. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so, yeah, just as a brief explanation. Also, that was also the weekend when I proposed. Uh, so I have very, good, very positive associations with Love Muddy... It. Uh, that was when my then girlfriend became my now wife. Um, so about Commander Krug, I really just have three words that I want to mention, which is "Give me Genesis." And I really, I mean, th having this character motivator being like "Give me what I want," which is another thing that he says verbatim, "Give yep. me what I want," is just such a lame motivator compared to somebody who says, I want to see you squirm yeah. is, and enjoys watching somebody squirm, which is what Khan did is just such a more interesting and uh, fun to watch villain. And I think that a big problem with him is that you don't really understand why he wants Genesis other than it is a weapon and mm -hmm. they are aggressive and therefore they want weapons. Yeah. Um, but you don't really get a great sense of anything beyond that. And so there's a lack of understanding motivation, first of all. Um, and then I think Khan had this great sense of joy from the things that he did. Like he got so much enjoyment from being evil in mm -hmm. that movie. And being evil, I mean, somebody doesn't need to be uh, relatable to be motivated. Yeah. And so you understand his motivation. And so I felt are... joy. Look how joy he had. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> if exactly. I got that much joy from murdering folk, maybe I do too. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But you don't really get a sense that Krug enjoys any of this. It's nope. like he's, um, you know, he's doing it, but he's just always angry and he's always just seems to be pissed off. Um, and and so it's just not as interesting and not as fun to watch as the, as the main right. problems and not as well written either yep. uh, as a result. Um, with regards to 
to the Klingons in general. I mean, I I remember Klingons as being like the iconic Star Trek villain. Yeah. When I watched the first Star Trek movie I ever had, which was Star Trek 2009, I remember I was thinking like, oh, this must be the Klingons when they were in that big bad ship. But no, they were the something else. Romulans. Sure. Um, <laughs> if you insist. <laughs> <laughs> but I was like, oh, what's, what's with them? They're not the Klingons at all. Uh, but they're angry, just like I assume Klingons will be. And I knew that Klingons had like a very like K-heavy language mm-hmm. that sounds very sort of um, cacophonous. Yep. Uh, and I knew that they were aggressive types mm-hmm. in general, if I yep. may make a generalization. Um, and so it seems like he fits the bill. Like mm-hmm. he seems very much in keeping with what I knew about them. But I don't really know anything more about them after watching this than I did beforehand. There is an interesting thing about motivation when it comes to this character in the way that his motivation makes a little bit more sense if you know more about the, the Klingon aspect of it. He has a line where he's talking about why he wants to go to Genesis. It's actually kind of an interesting subtle scene. So he has two of his like executive officers watch Kirk um, giving the presentation on the Genesis torpedo. And then he says, speak. And he asks the one guy what to say. And the guy responds, great power, an ultimate weapon. The other guy says, impressive, they can make a planet. That guy gets told to go back to his station. Done. The other guy then ha- he like has a, like a one-on-one with where he basically says, while our superiors are negotiating for peace with the Federation, we're going to like sneak in and do this thing. Because basically, like, you get the idea of, like, as you have with a lot of like military-heavy governments, when the government has decided that war is no longer in their best interest, you can see the military members taking things into their own hands. And it is like an interesting moment of him kind of like realizing that he is like, he is like aggressive. He's a military member. He's like, he is not interested in this peace that his government is pushing forward. And he feels that this like Genesis weapon is kind of like, and is like a betrayal as like, and so when, so it was like uh, when uh, Kirk says, like, how dare you attack your things in active war? He responds, like, don't talk to me about allegations of like starting war when you guys are making this huge weapon behind our backs is a sort of thing. Um, and so like he does have breadcrumbs is like of a motivation, but nothing as close to uh, the kind of like beautifully poetic, simple, yet like elegantly crafted motivation as Khan. I think you you hit the nail on the head when he's lit, when Krug is literally saying Genesis, I want it <laughs> in one, and in I'm one. like, I know, uh, oh, oh, I know. And then meanwhile, you have like Khan who's doing like the one thing when Kirk says like, what's the meaning of this attack? You're supposed like, oh, I thought I made my intention plain. I was like, I was like, with my first pass, I deprived your ship of power. And when I swing around, I intend to deprive you of your life. <laughs> and it's just like that beautiful relish in it of like that kind of like no, no, doc, no, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die sort yeah. of like yeah. mentality. You just don't get that from this. Um, and as much as like I can dig deep into the tea leaves to find the things that I want, it's like um, if you remove it even two inches away from your face, you're like, oh, that's just a bunch of mud. And so, and, um Muddy is a very appropriate term in that case, for sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that the I'm not saying the motivation is not there if you didn't if you didn't dig for it, but mm-hmm. I guess I don't I didn't feel it. Yeah, and that's the problem. And if it needs to be sort of justified afterwards in the writing in one scene, and then the rest yeah. of it is just I want this, give it to yeah. me. Yep, and then it's not as interesting to watch. Yeah, what's interesting is that this movie will have like 
wide-reaching amplifications for Klingons in general in the universe, um, both in terms of like the world-building aspects, as you had mentioned, I think previously that it's like one of the two of us mentioned, maybe both of us do, that this is the first movie where the Klingon language actually shows up as like a legit language. It's like in the first movie, it was just a series of words that James Doonan um, made up, the guy that plays Scotty. Um, he just made them up and he's like, these sound like good Klingon words and they did. Um, they actually brought an actual linguist on board for this who listened to the first movie, broke down the uh, phonetics of which sounds were actually being used, incorporated them, added more, and then created a like, grammatical sentence, like, uh, sentence structure, and basically did everything in his power to make things sound as like little, at least human as possible. So anything that is like that is like the least used thing in a human language in terms of like word order and terms of that, he chose those things. He added sounds together that never show up together in an English, like in an actual like human language, all that sort of stuff in order to make this really interesting language um, so that he was actually on set for a lot of like those things. And like basically after like, after the film, after they call cut, turn to the camera guy, that work for you? Yep. It's like, it's like, then it's like, turns the actors that work for you. And then turns to the Klingon guy and said, did the Klingon sound good? Um, and so like, I appreciate that attention to this, but even beyond just the world building, something that this movie does in a long way is actually set up a deep resentment between uh, Kirk and Klingons for the coming things. First of all, because it's like people don't like that Kirk um, killed an entire Klingon crew. Is sure. that the thing? Yeah. Sure. And, and they killed that, Butch. It's like, yeah, and then Kirk hates the fact that they killed Butch as yeah. like, uh, as a otherwise known as David. <laughs> um, which as I'm getting from your, from your, uh, is it your summary that didn't really hit you too emotionally? No, no, it didn't. Um, and I was reading, uh, a quote from a book that was quoted on Wikipedia. <laughs> A to B to C to D to <laughs> And uh, they were saying that Kirk's reaction to uh, Butch being killed was like his, his finest screen acting moment. And I had totally forgotten what his reaction looked like. I just remember him going down and, and just not really seeing his like death even. Like I think mm. he falls into a bush and then the guy stabs him almost yeah. off screen. Um, yeah. And, uh, and I was rewatching it and, and yeah, I mean, he, he sort of tumbles and doesn't quite sit on his chair mm-hmm. and then sort of gathers himself and then decides to do the whole self-destruction, yeah. which I suppose is probably the most emoting that I've seen, um, uh, uh, Shatner do, but I wouldn't call it really, really, you know, super engrossing or, or, um, I, I, I wouldn't say praiseworthy. It's interesting. It's like, yeah, definitely. I think his his reaction to Spock's death, I think, is for me, is kind of his, his some of his best screen acting. Especially, definitely, I felt yeah. that way more. Well, especially because like in this in the television series, he's known for going over the top, like going like full like the full cage version of whatever Shatner can do is like just shatting the bed, I suppose, in the full like full intensity of it. But like in the movies, he's much more restrained. Um, I think I I actually find that there's like a lot of like poignancy to the, the the acting choice for him to like trip back and fall in front of the like the chair is like and also like act afterwards after that where he like basically swir- swivels the chair around and puts his head on the banister for a second and then McCoy comes over to try and talk to him and he just kind of like and like pushes him away slowly and then turns around and kind of like and goes back to work like I find that that's very impressive um i like that sort of aspect it once again is back to what we said about uh, the search for spock about how these like the men who have been like trained in like military duty for such a long time like and it's way more potent to watch someone 
like struggle to hold in their emotions than it is to actually see them expressed outwards. And I think that the stuff that is like, like circles around the actual scene of him, like breaking down is actually more poignant than that. Um, didn't really spend too much time with Butch. So it's really hard to, to really feel to something, but it's like, it definitely has like a, a wide reaching implication that comes, it like comes was like full circle uh, later on in the films. for sure. Mm. Yeah. Maybe that was it. Maybe that was the problem is I just didn't really feel much of a connection with Butch. You don't really get to see them very much together. Certainly he was estranged and didn't really see him very much, but, yep. uh, and so maybe it just lost that poignancy as well as the fact that the, the scene itself of his death is so much less impressive than the scene of Spock's death. Yeah. Like so much less impressive. And maybe if they had done that a little bit better, then yeah. it would have, would have felt more emotional. To, to, to pay the, uh, the actor who, uh, who plays Bush, who was like, who I don't even remember uh, the actor's name, even as I'm it's like intentionally getting the character's name wrong. Um, the, the sound he makes when the knife goes in is actually something that I think of a lot. It is like, it is like burned into my head in a way. It is like, have you, do you know that story of like from the uh, this filming of Lord of the Rings? Yeah, Christopher Lee. Christopher Lee describing yeah. what it sounds like when to get a knife in the back and that kind of like the yelp that sounds like just all of the air coming out of it. It kind of sounds like that. It's mm-hmm. like, and it's like, I, I always, I, that one sound bit actually is a lot more in my head than anything else in that sequence for sure. <laughs> I, I really wish I responded to this as strongly as you did. No, that's fair. That's fair. Like, I've seen it for many times. It's like, and it's kind of like, in, it's like in my head is like a lot of the time it's like uh throughout a lot of it um speaking of characters that are often pushed to the side uh figure three we have is like uh titled the side characters get to shine because so far the movies have been the kirk spock and depending on your mileage the mccoy show is like as we go through <laughs> um but here we actually have the other characters like uhura sulu Chekhov, and scotty that actually managed to sneak onto screen a little bit more often they don't I wouldn't say that they have arcs. They definitely don't have arcs, but they have beats that revolve around them as opposed to revolving specifically around their reaction to other things that are happening. Um, did any of these characters on screen like make more of an impact to you than they had? I remember when describing the motion picture, you described it kind of like feeling like an outsider because so much of the time was spent people talking and then we got to catch the is like the reaction of this person that I have no attachment to. <laughs> Yeah, I think that, um, you know, I was looking back on this and, and thinking back to the other movies in comparison. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's true that they have a bit more agency. Like Uhura has this like specific, you know, um, uh, changing of her usual jobs so she can allow mm-hmm. uh, Kirk and Co. to get back on the ship. And then mm-hmm. Scotty not only fixes the ship in rapid time, which he does all the time, yeah. um, but also sabotages another ship and opens the doors as we talked about before. Yeah. Um, but I, I'm trying to remember other sort of more specific uh, individual agency that they express. Mm. More, mostly what I remember when I think about the side characters is is Chekhov going down to the planet where, um, mm. where Khan was yeah. and his sort of individual experience, him getting that, horrible ear thing yeah and then being sort of controlled and manipulating others which i felt was a much better use of side characters and actually i think probably the best use of the side characters thus far definitely Um, yeah whereas here i don't feel like i felt it as much despite your figure (laughs) (laughs) no that's fair that's fair is it and you're right there's like definitely like um like maybe Chekhov gets a lot of use in that second movie it's like um the in the third movie i think the thing that i'm gravitating more towards is actually seeing 
them interact more is like between each other and with like the lead characters is like in a in a capacity that isn't just them being barked at orders. You have a scene of like them meeting up at Kirk's place to like to have a drink together is like where each character is now out of their uniform and is wearing specific clothing that is more tailored towards their own past. You have their different roles that they're doing in this kind of like pseudo heist where like you're putting the team together and you got to have them all go through. You have two of probably my favorite lines in all of Star Trek, which both come from Scotty and are his weird little like Scottish terms of phrase where they're just looking at the Excelsior and they're all kind of ogling over it and saying like, Oh, I think it's supposed to be able to go faster than warp drive. And he responds, I, and my, if my grandmother had a wheel, she'd be a wagon, which is just like nonsensical, but like something that my grandmother from Edinburgh would say, um, or after he, uh, like they escape with the after um, having sabotaged the Excelsior, and his response is, "The more they overthink the plumbing, the easier it is to clog up the drain." Which I say all the time. Um, so I, I think that there are, I would say, like instead of there being like central things where you're like, look at this character being ris- risen up, like the other characters, the time they're spent on screen, I think, makes more of an impact as opposed to like, uh, like, uh, like just the small bits like that even make more of an impact than it's like um, they did in like. I don't think I can, I've seen the movie a million times. I'm not sure if I can remember anything that Sulu says in movies one or two. Hmm. Yeah. What do you remember him saying in this movie? I don't call me tiny. <laughs> so they go into the <laughs> big, big, big shift. Apparently that he insisted on getting that taken out initially. And then they had to, he, we watched it and put it back. In. I, I have heard that. Yeah. 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 It's like, there's that sequence. It's like, um, and I, uh, it's like, I do like his, like, he's the one that, like sees the um the Klingon bird of prey is like to start is like to start and they is like it's like him and Kirk having like little power. I was like, yeah, what's that thing over there? Is again like this like I like I like those things. and I think it's possible because there's not the rest of the crew around. It's just these people on the bridge. And so like, again, so it does uh, focus on them a little bit more. Mm, that's true. I I guess I did get a more sense of them being a more tight knit mm-hmm. team um in this movie compared yeah. to compared to prior. Yeah. Um, and I think we should probably mention at this point, I'm not sure if you know this, that Nichelle Nichols, who plays Aurora, actually passed away it was like between the, when we're recording this movie, this episode, and the last time that we recorded one. I did hear that. Yeah. yeah. And, it's like, and it's, uh, it's like she had like a great life. It's like she has a great story that it's like people can go look out there to find about when she wanted to quit Star Trek and was convinced by Martin Luther King to stay on, like, on the set like, at, the, at the time because his daughters loved watching her it's like, uh, on, uh, on set. It's like, um, of Star Trek, like loved watching her on the bridge with everybody else. It's um, a wonderful story. It's a wonderful story. It's a, it's a great. It's like a. It's like the the funniest part of the story is when she's talking about she's at this like conference and someone's like uh, this convention and someone says, "Oh, a fan wants to talk to you," and she's like, "Okay." And she looks over and she sees Martin Luther King walking to her. She says, "Well, that fan's going to have to wait because the king's walking towards me, and I'm going to talk to him." <laughs> and it's the fan, obviously, who's coming to talk to her. It's like it is Martin Luther King. So um, there's it's uh, she lived a great life. She has a lot of great stories out there and great insight interviews. I recommend going out there and uh, and like, looking at some of them because definitely Star Trek didn't always treat her right. It's like throughout the times, especially after the uh, the films went like is like uh, after even with uh, before the films after the show was done. Um, a lot of the actors fell in hard times because they weren't getting paid for the serialization of these like these shows and stuff like that. Even though the studios were raking in a lot for the serialization, so. Um, but she definitely did a lot for Star Trek in that way. So I recommend going out and checking that out if you get the chance. Um, speaking of someone who's like who is like did a lot for Star Trek, uh, the figure four is just titled Spock, which I feel is fair because we haven't talked about him a whole lot in this, and considering that his name is in the title. 
Um, because Leonard Nimoy actually spends most of his time in the director's chair, with only Ridge emerging as the titular Spock, which I also call our MacGuffin slash proto-Matt Damon, as we're always constantly going to find Matt Damon in whatever recess of space he has found himself trapped in today. Um, and he only shows up again near the film's end. Uh, so considering the emotional heft that his death is like at the end of the second one had, um, how do you feel about the resurrection of Spock as well as the mysteriously connected destruction of Genesis in this movie? Uh, well, first of all, I just want to comment. When I saw this, I thought that you meant Matt Damon as Private Ryan. And I didn't even connect it to the Martian or to Interstellar. <laughs> he's been searched for so many times. Yeah, he's like the Sean being Sean Bean of being found. Exactly. Um, so yeah, I think that, you know, it always seems like a um, such a cop-out when somebody says, oh, well, they died, or I'm, they, I assume that they died, or it looks like they died, but then, yeah. oh, they they came back somehow or yeah. they, you know, there was, they weren't quite dead and we just managed to save them. And you're like, okay, well there was this whole emotional heft of their like me reaction to their dying or to their almost dying. And then it just feels so fake and like you've been cheated when they no. come back. No. I'm thinking for example of a million examples um, of the Avengers, the first one in 2012. Mm-hmm. Iron yeah, with Iron Man, he goes yeah. up into space, and then you're like, "Oh no, he's dead!" And he falls down, and you're like, "Oh, he's dying." And then it took some eighteen more movies for him to finally kick the bucket. Yeah, he finally <laughs> kicked the iron bucket. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, then you sort of feel cheated. Um, and here, I mean, there is some aspect of that because you feel like he, you know, the the weight of it, it of his dying, which was very emotional mm-hmm. uh, and very well done, is sort of taken away because he's back. But I think there's two differences. Number one is that he doesn't quite seem to be the same person when he comes back. There seems yeah. to be something that's lost that they're going to need to work to regain, mm-hmm. first of all. And secondly, is because they had to go through so much to get him back. So much sacrifice. So <laughs> much crap that they had to go through yeah. to bring him back. To quote um, uh, Spock's dad, your ship, your son, were the two things that yeah. he sort of sacrificed. Uh, but not a soul, as we saw in the movie. Yeah. Um, and so I think that, you know, I, I feel pretty good about, about the resurrection. I think my worst uh, thing I could say about it is that it seems sort of um, far-fetched that he, they shoot this tube Spock into space. He happens to land on the Genesis planet, and then he happens to age super fast until he is right up exactly, to where Nimoy is. <laughs> exactly the same age when Leonard Nimoy is. And then they get rid of him just before the planet explodes, and he's the right age, and... Uh, not to mention the whole far-fetched ham-fisted thing that I already talked about, which is Bones being very affected by Spock's um, consciousness or life spirit within his mind. There's a name, Katra. Katra. Um, Katra within him until it's sort of, they realize that that's what's happening. And then he just goes back to being regular old Bones and no yeah. longer has to have this struggle. I feel like that whole plot line would be so much better if there was more struggle within Bones about these two aspects that are now inside of him that he's struggling with instead yeah. of just sort of ignoring it largely for the rest of the movie mm-hmm. until he goes in and, and gets his um, uh, his Spockness exercised. Um, but that has nothing to do with the actual feeling of the resurrection itself. That's just more about the, the, the plot uh, itself. But no, I think that in general, the resurrection, I think, is quite well done and is something that I didn't really feel so cheated by because of that sacrifice and because of the the length of time and the effort they had to go through to do it and because he's not exactly the same. Yeah, I think there's there's definitely something very interesting about the theme on its own and the kind of way of like what would you sacrifice for the chance of bringing something back? Like what is worth that risk? Is like um how far are you willing to go? And it's a uh, 
I think in terms of Star Trek, as we've seen it, like, yeah, the, this movie as well as Wrath of the Khan have the two most, like, intense actual, like, like consequences. You see things that happen, like, and, like, and it basically, in order to get back to the status quo, you have to give up a lot of other things in order to get there. Um, and I think what fares worse for me than the actual resurrection in Spock's death is, like, the really cool theme I liked in Wrath of Khan about the accepting of, like, mortality of the kind of recognition in, like, rebirth and regenesis through, is like, the kind of idea that, yeah, we're we're going to have to die, we're going to have to do those things, like, and then it's like, oh, wait, you don't actually have to, <laughs> turns out. Um, in other ways, like, you can say that it's, it's quite cool because, like, the genesis device ends up becoming a lot more obvious of a uh, like nuclear arms metaphor in this in the way of like it has the ability to like create but also has the ability to destroy and you can see that it's unstable unstable unprecedented and wasn't fully tested and is kind of like a danger to us is like afterwards on the other hand all of the cool like waxing poetic that we have about using a tale of two cities and paradise laws and stuff like that it's kind of all thrown out for the chance of just being like yeah but we really need our main character back um, so I think on a thematic level in conversation with Wrath of Khan, it doesn't do as well. But I agree with you that relative to, let's say, Star Trek Into Darkness, where Kirk dies and is resurrected again in 30 minutes, um, spending an entire movie fighting through this to sacrifice to get through it and not having to use magical tribbles in any way, shape or form is like, definitely a step up. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I think that if they had to do it, then they, they did it right. Yep. Um, I think that uh, it's so true that, you know, for a movie that deals with the idea of, of finality and mortality and giving things up, um, that does seem a bit like a cop-out to not have that anymore. No. Um, I know that George R. R. Martin has complained about the idea of Gandalf dying and then coming back. Not, not just the idea of him coming back, but coming back even better. Like, yeah. he's, he's, like <laughs> he's even better than he was before. Death was a glow up for Ex him. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Whereas, you know, he, in his books, characters sometimes die and, and then come back, but then they will be a shell of their former selves. Yeah. They have like a lot of things that have been lost and sacrificed, which makes you question whether they should even be alive at all. Yeah. Um, so, um, Beric Dondarrion and, uh, Catelyn Stark being mm -hmm. the two main ones. Yeah. Um, and, it seems like that's something that they were maybe toying with a little bit that Spock has, has lost something throughout this whole process, but I don't know whether that'll actually play out in the long term in, in the voyage home. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see. We'll see. It's like, uh, I think that in some ways you'll be, he's like, you'll be pleased in other ways. Not it's like, let's, let's go with that. Um, something else I want to say about Spock while we're still on this figure is kind of like Leonard Nimoy as a director in this is kind of interesting. He, uh, uh, there's a good chunk of this movie that is very well directed, very well edited. There's like, there's some scenes that you can feel is just kind of like they just placed cameras on a small set and like, and kind of like caught the got coverage in one, one way or another. Um, but there are some really interesting choices that I, that I've noticed this time around. That I really like there's something he obviously has a strong affinity for like the mysticism that's involved in Vulcan. Vulcan is like a strange combination of logic, but also like this, they have this sort of like, spiritual life that still exists within their logical one which is actually a really cool thing that you don't see a lot in sci-fi and he really likes to showcase that visually in this by really intense close-up um like i can see every craggle on is like on sarek's face it's like in this on in his, his on his lips as he's speaking, speaking those words yeah 
And then it occurred to me while well, I don't think I've seen an eyeball that close since that uh, weird experimental film from a long time ago where they cut open the eye using a razor. Oh yeah, Shyamalan Balu. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, it's like, uh, and it's just like I love that kind of stuff. Is it's it's weird. It's kind of unsettling, um, and it does focus you on these kind of like on the action aspects of it. It's, it's just something that I don't usually see shown yeah. that way, and it's shown in both that scene with the melt, mind melt as well as near the end. It's like uh, with the um, the uh, the big ritual that they're like it's like shifting the Katra from Zeke McCoy back to Spock. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it is interesting. I think it's an effective technique because mm-hmm. it's something where just like any sort of very extreme close up, it forces you to look closely at something that is is even closer than you could possibly look at. Yeah. Uh, you, you will never see someone like someone's face that close yeah. in most cases. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And so um, it is interesting to give you a different perspective. Yeah. Uh, and then the other thing I quite liked, the weird choice that he made, is that actually what you mentioned in your summary is like the beginning of the movie, the, the choice to replay scenes from Wrath of Khan, but do so in a very strange way. Like the opening where it's actually showing the death of Spock is it starts off really small. Like this small like the screen is incredibly small in the very center, and it slowly expands to fill the entire t- like TV or screen or whatever you're watching as it progresses. But it's also like coated blue. Like it's like you've got like a blue wash over it. And then as the uh, it expands, and then is like eventually as the uh, the scene continues, and we go into the funeral, the blue wash is removed to like to actually kind of go just to regular coloring in one way, and it almost feels like kind of like waking up from a bad dream to realize that it's actually true. Like you see this like very like not unrealistic like kind of like off reality sort of like view of the event that then fades into the reality that brings you into the movie again. It was. It's a very weird choice. I don't know exactly why it was made that way, but I think it does work for me. I can't remember. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, I have watched this many, many times. <laughs> oh, well, instead of me just waxing poetic for a long time and talking at you, it's like, we're going to, it's like, hand the, uh, it's like, this is the portion where we actually hand the reins over to you for um, what we call questions, questions that need answering. Um, where the uh, like first author slash is like a thesis candidate is able to question the um, corresponding author, aka supervisor, myself, um, anything you want, any weird questions that popped up throughout the course. So do you have any questions that you have from your watching of The Search for Spock? I did prep a couple. We probably have gone through a lot of them. Mm-hmm. Like how many people does it take to run the enterprise? Yeah. Um, my sense is like based on that question that Kirk and Bones could not have done it themselves. No. And they were definitely depending on those people. 100%. To, like him saying that was basically just to have them make sure that they were actually committed to it. Despite how frequently in the original series, Kirk, when someone would say it's not working, would run over to their console and start pressing buttons to confirm for himself that it wasn't working. I have no doubt that he could not handle that thing on his own. <laughs> okay. Um, why did Butch Marcus need to be in this movie? Um, yeah, I think it might be something to do with the, there's a, there's a strange aspect of that because even, uh, Lieutenant Savick, who shows up in this is played by a different actress than, uh, Kirstie Alley in this. So it does make you wonder why we needed those two. It was like, I think part of it comes down to Nimoy just wanting the, uh, or Harv Bennett, whoever it was made the decision to kind of want that intense choice is uh, when the Klingon says basically, okay, I'm going to kill one of our prisoners. I don't care which one. Um, Kirk meanwhile cares because he knows all three that are down there 
It's kind of funny though that I'm thinking in my head. I'm like, Kirk is probably secretly hoping that Savick is the one that gets it. No, it's, it's not even Kirstie Alley anymore. No, it's not even Kirstie Alley anymore. It's not my. It's not my son. It's not the person I've come here to save. It's like all that sort of stuff. So, um, yeah, I I don't think they needed to be in this movie. And honestly, it might have been better if it just uh, is like if if they um went a different direction with it. When I was a child, sorry, I know that we said we weren't going to do this. But we're doing this. When I was a child, The Return of the Jedi was my favorite Star Wars movie because it, oh. it was sat- so satisfying to see Han Solo melt out of the carbonite with that sound effect. That is a great sound effect. <laughs> and I liked seeing the Ewoks throw rocks at those walker things. Yeah, that's fun too. So why was The Search for Spock your favorite Star Trek movie as a child? I honestly think it was because of the Enterprise blew up in it. it was like, and there was also the fun... It's like. There's also something like when I was younger, I didn't quite, as like similar to your question, I didn't quite get why there were so many people on the Enterprise. Like, what the heck are they all doing? These are the people who I care about. And it was just those people now. <laughs> so, um, so I think I also have a thing in Star Trek where generally my interest wanes whenever they go onto the planet, like onto a planet. I love things in the ships. I love things that take, I love the episodes that take place entirely in space. I love all that sort of stuff. Um, and so this movie is split kind of between the two. And so I could similarly, as I had said, just play during during the Genesis bits, but then really like I felt that there was some really strong space stuff in here and some like cool things that were going through. Despite the fact that Spock was my favorite character and is not in this movie at all, it was one of my favorites. And I think it was just I loved those two scenes so much. I would just kind of sit through the entire movie waiting for those to show up. Mm. I also did love Kirk fighting Krug when I was young. I thought that was quite cool. So I wonder about your opinions on that fight because I thought that it was pretty terrible, bad. Yeah. <laughs> um, there, I mean, in general, you know, there's a scene um, maybe about half an hour, forty minutes into the film, The Irishman, where um, you know what I'm talking about, <laughs> where when, uh, Robert De Niro, when old Robert De Niro, <laughs> playing a thirty year old man, comes in and beats up some shopkeep. Yep. And you can really tell he's old Robert De Niro, despite the CGI on his face. Mm-hmm. Uh, and similarly, despite the fact that they have a wide shot that shows a guy doing a backflip off of Krug, <laughs> you know that <laughs> that this is an old Shatner who um, uh, is not in peak physical fitness for this uh, for this role. Um, I I mean. Do you still think that it's a good fight scene, number one? Secondly, do you think it's proper for a guy you want to see as heroic to end a fight scene by kicking a guy who's holding onto a cliff in the face until he falls off? Uh, okay, so first question first, no. Um, this is the portion of this movie that is aged the worst every time that I watch it. Every time I watch it, it's actually worse than I, than I remember <laughs> it. Um, it's like, when I was younger, I was like, it was... So it was startling in Star Trek to see blood, to see it was like, and Kirk is very bloodied by the time this is done. No bruises or anything. His face is in like the perfect shape, but like just like random nondescript, like bleeding from no cuts. Um, so that was, that was surprising. Um, didn't really have much in the way of like good choreography training in my eyes when I was younger. So it just looked kind of like, I had two people fighting each other. When you, when I got older, it was like, first of all, like the choreography is not great. Second of all, it's clear that the different tricks they're trying to do to hide the fact that the choreography is not great. Yeah, wide shots where someone, where an obvious stunt double is jumping backwards. There's literally a moment where they're just spinning the camera around, looking at the background. And I'm just kind of like, it's, like, it's, it's just, uh, it's not, it's not good. It's not good. Um, it's like, I, I understand their, their want to have the mono a mono is like at the end, but it's just, it didn't need to happen this way. Uh, as for the second part. I think they try their best to make it to make it where this is like clearly not like not his first choice because like so Krug falls is like like the 
Ground caves away. Kruger's hanging from the side. Kirk says, give me your hand. Kruger in classic style just grabs his foot and pulls it out from under him. So it's like Kirk is now lying on the ground. And Kirk, there's a shot where Kirk's looking at and Kirk is literally just like pulling at his pant leg to try and pull him off. And you can see William kind of just shake his head and then just kick him in the face. Like, um, and he's literally, his literal line is, I've had enough of you. <laughs> and, you know, is that the beacon of heroism that, uh, heroism that I want? No. <laughs> but I am reminded of a great scene from the sci-fi, is a classic Firefly, where it's like Malcolm Reynolds says, Mercy is this is like is the after having defeated someone in a in a sword fight says mercy is the mark of a great man and then kind of just gently pokes the guy in a little bit to hurt him a bit. It's like I guess I'm just a great uh, just a good man. He pokes him again. I'm all right. <laughs> and I feel like that's kind of what we're having here. There were high morals, but once high morals hit the pavement, after a while, I was just like I'm done with this. And I think it's human, if not entirely heroic. <laughs> Yeah, I think that, you know, I I just I find it interesting that they're trying to come up with some sort of choreography where Krug falls to his death. And it's, you know, you want to have it fit with what we know of Kirk. Yeah. Kirk is the kind of guy who will, uh, you know, be fighting some guy, presumably to the death, then try to help him up when he's about to die, presumably assuming that the guy's going to. Surrender. No, I mean, surrender after that. Otherwise, why would he do it? Yeah. <laughs> but, but, and then after he realized the guy's not going to surrender to just kick him in the face. Yeah. <laughs> and, and is that the Kirk that you know? Is that, is that, does that very much fit in line with him? Yeah. And was that something that you're like, okay, well, this, this supports his character? Because I think it's just such an odd thing. Like, why is that better than, than having him just be kicked off the edge? I guess because it shows that he would try to help him up. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, yeah. There is a there's an ongoing battle between what is like the the classic like which Star Trek captain is the best Star Trek captain because as sense of all the series there are at least six now um, I haven't watched Discovery so I don't know but there is at least six different like uh, Star Trek captains that have been like main characters on their different shows um, and they all have different styles is like and they can, but they can be broadly like split into the kind of more like aggressive like swashbuckling like like uh like will do things that no one else is willing to do versus the more diplomatic kind of nuanced things. I tend to gravitate towards the latter is like uh with as like with the captains so like Jean Luc Picard who's played by Patrick Stewart. It's a great example of that. It's like my personal favorite. But then both Captain Kirk as well as Captain Cisco from Deep Space Nine are kind of more of this like. He's like, and you can see the people who write on this. This is why I love Kirby. He was willing to do the things that the other captains weren't. I'm like, willing to do the things that maybe other captains weren't, shouldn't, would, should never. Like, just not, <laughs> it's, um, I don't know. It's like, it's like the the fact, like, no, it's like the 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 greatest the greatest travesty of the next generation movies is that they try to have every end every movie with Patrick Stewart going like fist fisticuffs with their lead thing. And he looks even older than Shatner and it just doesn't match his character at all. Um, he's like, so this one, at least it kind of like it, it, it tracks. Okay. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> I, I think to me, it also just seemed kind of funny. Like, it's sort <laughs> it of like pretty funny. Doesn't it? <laughs> it's sort of like, you ever watch It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia? No, I never know. <laughs> There's memes that have been made of this. With the, where, like, with the, he's like, I've got your brother. And then he comes with a two by four and he's like, Oh no, no you, you don't. don't. <laughs> I think there was a meme that was made of that with a E3 ubiquitin like. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, you don't. 
Uh, oh, that's a nice little science joke for y'all out there. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, yes. It's like, uh, any, any more questions? Yes. Does it frustrate you that nothing bad ever happens to Kirk except last time uh, and now that's all better? I guess we sort of covered that. That it, I mean, it's not maybe all better. He had to sacrifice more stuff. Uh, but do you think it's right to take out a ship that people say is unsafe and also sabotage a new ship that you have nothing to do with in order to do something that might have been able to be handled by other people even better? Yeah, I know. It's, I think about these things a lot in terms of the morality of movies versus the morality of the real world. Um, I know you're not a big fan of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but there is a movie called Civil War that has Captain America versus Iron Man. And the thing that they're arguing... I've seen that. Over, I remember them fighting. Yeah. yeah. It's like, and so the reason they're fighting in that movie is about oversight of superheroes. And the movie is Captain America Civil War. So you're meant to side with Captain America, who's on the uh, side of no oversight for is it for the heroes. They have the moral center. They should be allowed to do what they want. America. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and, and uh, given the fact that he's Captain America, it really does not track with like, So, But like the movie's morality is definitely centered in that way. And there are moments where like, if you're watching the movie and you're like in the movie's universe, not our own, divorcing it from us, like, you can see why he would say this. But like looking at it with any sort of outside lens of like the actual world that exists, like clearly that is not the correct way to go. Similarly in this movie, Kirk has pretty much like proven that all of his choices were the right ones to make. Um, they shouldn't have been it's like for many, it's like for many stretches as like, and uh, your, your, your frustration with Kirk having uh, basically his losses re redacted is going to only increase as you go through this, like the series. Uh. Um, it's like, but I will say that in later films, perhaps in the latest of the films, there is something that happens where you can actually see a moment where Kirk has to give up something that he cannot get back, which is basically his utter confidence that his decision is the right one and have to admit that he's made a mistake in, sense, like in some way. The closest we get to that in this movie is when he says, my God, Bones, what have I done after he blew up the ship? And Bones immediately like, you did the right thing. He's like, cool. And then they carry on. <laughs> yeah, that's what we need you there for, Bones. <laughs> I mean, in that case, it was the right thing. That's, that's it was the, the right thing. thing. But and it was after multiple other things that may not have been the correct thing. Yeah, it's like, but it's one of those scenarios that, like, if it's like, uh, if he hadn't done what he did, then, like, definitely, it's like, it's like, Savick, David, and Spock would have all been killed by the Klingons, it's like, in that maybe they would have been, it's like, they would have been tricked into giving something away about Genesis. Who knows? It's like, his decisions in this all end up being correct, and the only thing that he's hurting is the chain of command. It's like, um... And that's like, but that's one of those scenarios that in a real world scenario, this would not be the case. Yeah. I, there was a, this guy, he was talking about investing in this case. And he had a quote that he was talking about, like, if a decision leads to a good outcome, does this, does it always mean that it was the correct decision? Yeah. If you're taking on say unnecessary risk, mm -hmm. if you're taking on, um, uh, risk that otherwise wouldn't, wouldn't be necessary yeah. at all. Uh, and uh, that's what I feel like Kirk's doing a lot of the time, you know? Yeah. There, there was a quote from a book I'm reading recently where the guy said, you know, if the risk of failure is totally unacceptable, then it doesn't matter what the upside is because yeah. you shouldn't be making that decision. Right. Um, and that's what I feel like a lot of the stuff that, <laughs> that Kirk does is, yeah. uh, is in line with. Yeah. Just because it had a good outcome doesn't mean it was the correct decision, Kirk. But, but I think it's an interesting line that he has there when it was like that you quoted when like Sarek is basically presenting with him all the things he lost. And he says, like, if I hadn't tried, then the, the loss would have been my soul. Like, there is something interesting about human beings who tie themselves so deeply 
into the decisions they're willing and not willing to make that if presented with a decision, it's almost like the, um, the inverse of like that iron cage of logic. It's not that you are trapped by making the most logical scenario. It is you are trapped by the fate that is you are always going to make this decision because that's just who you are as a person. Mm-hmm. Um, is that the person who's supposed to lead? I don't know. It was like, but people do follow him. And it's kind of interesting to see it's like, uh, the, uh, the characters that are willing to follow him and to wonder to yourself, would I get sucked up into that as well? Maybe. I definitely would have when I was younger. It's like um, as I've gotten older, I've tended to gravitate less towards him and more towards other things but i do appreciate the fact that he is unapologetically human in a lot of the choices he makes and that is uh something that i don't think is always said of star trek characters who sometimes feel like they've been like heightened to this point of like perfection in gene ronberry's eyes that they've almost lost some aspect of their humanity i don't think that could be said for him for sure that's that's very true that's very true Uh, i mentioned this a couple times um did it, did it seem to you that things got brought up uh, certain issues and then just got dropped right away? I mean, the, the, the two that I would think about and that I brought up a couple of times were, you know, Bones being affected by Spock and then yeah. immediately never having issues with it. And then the ship being supposedly not in a shape to actually travel and then being able to go and travel and do most of the stuff automated yeah. anyway. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, that seemed like pretty lazy plot uh necessity oh yeah uh in this case was it was there anything that i missed or was that just what it was so with mccoy there is a line where he is like kirk gives him a shot of something called lexerin it's like uh, which is supposed to like stabilize kind of like like something aspect of the neural pattern something like that so it's like magic juice you know, like the right stuff in Space Jam. It's sure, like sure. That, yeah. yeah, it's like so. Like there is like a a plot related hand wave that you can accept or not. Is like in that uh, the Enterprise. Like, I never took the Enterprise being decommissioned to necessarily mean that it was unsafe, but more that it was going to be too expensive to make it like um, to bring it back up to speed. As opposed to why would they bother redoing this Constitution class? Because like there is an understanding that like the Enterprise is what they call a Constitution class ship. And it was like the main type of ship that was used in the, in the Federation for a long time. And now the Excelsior will become the new kind of base model. So why would they bother spending money bringing this thing back up to fighting Kuznick standard when they're now in the process of spend, uh, getting all these, I shouldn't say money because they don't actually have money in, in this, it's like time, more resources. Mm. Um, and so like, I mean, you actually see that come to fruition in uh, the next generation, which is set 100 years in the future. At that point, the Excelsior is now the older ship that is slowly being decommissioned, while these other ones, the Galaxy class, is way better than the next things. So I didn't necessarily think that the ship was too unsafe to be like to be like flown or like to go, go around like they more so that Starfleet didn't see a value in it anymore. Um, and but- but it yeah. clearly was able to still go to warp speed and still do all the stuff they needed yeah. to. Yeah. Other than, of course, be able to fight and put a shield up at the same yeah. time, apparently. Well, but that was maybe because they didn't have enough crew. Yeah. Like, presumably, they have enough, if they had enough crew, it would be able to fly just fine. Yeah, but you look at, like, the, the hull damage that's done to the side and stuff like that, and the idea that they're going to have to, like, refit all of that. It's like, put, it's like there's going to be damage on the interior while they might have the, the systems functioning. The actual, like, rebuilding of the thing is going to be, like, a really long plan. It's like being in a house and be like, well, the plumbing and electrical still work. It's like... That's great. I'm worried that this window is going to collapse on the next storm. <laughs> so, like, I think that the ship in that way, like, needed a full refit. Um, it's like, uh, but they just weren't willing to put in the resources necessary to make it. And there is something to be said about that, about kind of like 
feeling like the uh, like Star Trek fan getting puffy when like this the the admiral says like oh the Enterprise is twenty years old we feel its day is done I'm like get away with me with that <laughs> so I guess it's not so bad that he stole it if it's going to be broken down anyway yeah actually it's going to it's going to get blown up anyway they just put it to better use <laughs> yeah yeah fair enough. Okay. <laughs> Uh, I brought up the old Kirk switcheroo, where he appears to be playing along, only pull one over on the villain. Uh, was used here. Was used in Wrath of Khan. Uh, wasn't really used in the motion picture. Is that classic Kirk, or is this something that uh, that is they sort of just they oh that worked well in Wrath of Khan. Let's bring it back here. So that so the switcheroo aspect is not necessarily, but the the bluffing and being able to pull that's definitely a Kirk related thing. So in the episode I mentioned before, the Corbomite maneuver. But um, the reason why it's called that is because when they're presented with this alien who says, I'm going to destroy you in this many hours, and they're like, they can't get away from it, they can't do anything, and they're like, yeah, you have this many hours, it's like to, to death. His last ditch effort is to basically say like, well, we didn't want to tell you this, but like we have this material on our ship called Corbomites that means that if you destroy us with your particular weapons, it will ex- create a huge explosion that will destroy you. And it's like a big gamble that he puts forward at the end. And so like, it is like, I think one of the, I think it's the first episode of Star Trek that they shot with Shatner. And it is like a kind of a, a classic. It's like in that, it's like in that, uh, that vein. So that's definitely in his lexicon of command. It's mm-hmm. like, it's this idea of like the gamble, the bluff that goes, uh, it's like to try and like the last ditch effort sort of thing. I gotcha. Uh, I, I think I only have uh, one more question. And this is an easy one. Was it distracting to you that Spock's dad looks roughly the same age as Spock? Maybe younger even. Yeah. It's like, so Vulcan aging is strange in the way that they live for hundreds of years, but they seem to like, there's like, in terms of their outward appearance, they seem to hit an asymptote at a certain point, And they don't really seem to look much older, almost as if the actors themselves eventually get to the point where they're all roughly the same age <laughs> or at least all over 50. So they all just look generally agent and it's, that was agent instead of this and um yeah it's like so maybe it's like, it's like they do it doesn't really bother me too much it's like outside of the fact that um something i do like is that that's it's still the same actor that plays fox dad that was in the show nice um it's like uh, mark leonard is his name and he's actually the only person to have played a klingon a romulan and a vulcan he is like a a, a star trek legend in a lot of ways nice yeah. That's all my questions. Thank you for taking me through those. No worries, no worries. And I think the the only thing to end with is a final uh, a final ask of future directions in the way that what do you hope for the future? What are you hoping that Star Trek is going to give you in the future? Is it and what I think more importantly, what have you given up on that you just kind of realized that from your first couple of times of hoping that something would change that that's not going to be the way that it's going to be? <laughs> I mean, the main thing is that well, I, I guess what I hoped for because what I felt for this movie was that it seemed much more milk toast than the first two. Like the yeah. first two, the first one, say what you will about it, it was certainly ambitious. Yeah, it was ambitious to a fault i think they swung yeah exactly they really <laughs> swung the fences with that one yeah. uh and the second one it felt you know much more scrappy you know they yeah. felt like it felt very creative and just sort of much more raw intense um whereas this one they felt much more comfortable and yep. they, i think you got into that right that they had more money they had more time yep. to sort of work on these things they could work on their sets expand the world and i feel like a lot was lost by having that actually because it didn't really feel like there was as much you know the first one there was a lot riding on it right they were like okay well like we need to make this a big success we need to make it like something big and then and that kind of flopped and then the second one they were like okay well we'll try to do something with what we have and then we'll try to do the best we can with this and then you know a lot of great creative decisions come from when you have very few resources Mm -hmm. that's what i've been told at least i'm not a creative person (laughs) 
And then the third one, it seems like they're like, okay, well, I think we're, I got a good success here. So let's keep it going. And that's just not that fun mm-hmm. to watch. It's not that interesting to watch. It's not that fun to watch. So this is less interesting than the motion picture. It was less fun than Wrath of Khan. So what I want them is to make more risky decisions, more out there things. I want their conceits to be more inventive and I want their conflicts to be more uh, uh, direct and feel more personal. I'm super excited to watch the next movie with you because this is considered the least Star Trek, but it's like of all the Star Trek movies um, in the way that it's fun. And it's also, but it's also like just batshit. Like there is weird stuff going on in this movie. I'm excited. Do you know the, the plot of the next one? Like the, the premise? I know there's something about humpback whales and there might be something about time travel. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> so we're, we're going to have a lot of fun with that. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's like in terms of the, the things that you've given up on, whether it's McCoy or Kirk ever getting his comeuppance, um, I can't help you with those. It's like, I think... The next is like if for this one, if you felt like the side characters is like maybe were more cohesive as a team, but still weren't used their full potential. I think the next one actually has way more time spent with them. Okay, good. It's like, so that's like, that'll be fun to see. Um, And I like we should enjoy this next breath of fresh air that's coming up because the one after is a little rough. Yeah. Oh God, no. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And on that great note, um, thank you, Dan, very much for a coming over to like my place. It's like uh, we this is the first time actually recording. It's like it's like in person in my place before, and this is a, a monumental occasion for the Arts and New Science podcast. Um, and thank you also for continuing this ongoing journey. The the, the human journey continues, um, and I would have nobody else beside me like you. I am so so happy to be here, and I'm glad we were able to make it happen in your beautiful home and recording person. It's been really lovely. Thank you. No worries. Um, and uh, I have been meaning to come up with a good sign-off for these episodes, because every time I just fumble my way through a, maybe you should come back and watch more episodes at some point, they'll be coming. I still haven't figured something out, so I will simply have to say thank you all very much for listening, and uh, this next episode will come out sometime in the next many, many months. Uh, so look forward to it. Sound production, take two. Doing it right this time. Let me see, assistant preferences. I should probably change my um, display so it doesn't turn off. Brightness, scaled, night shift. (laughs) How about contingent abnormality? It's got to mean something. Well, that sounds good. (laughs) (laughs) What is that? It's got to mean something. What are you talking about? There's, there's a quote of something that was like, look at this. That's got to mean something. What is that? <laughs> do you actually want me to tell you? Yes, I do. It, it's from Scary Movie 3. It was uh, George Carlin Just, as the architect. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Flipping through the dish, How about dictionary. Contingent abnormality. That's got to mean, mean something. something. <laughs> <laughs> that movie's actually pretty good. It's like, yeah. At certain times, like, there are scenes in that movie that are great. And yeah. Everything around it is just kind of... Uh, you have no idea how much I liked that movie when I first watched it in yeah. grade 8. I thought it was like... The, 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 the height of comedy. Thing. I never laughed so hard before or since, probably ever. Uh, I think I, I watched most of it again right afterwards with my friend Derek when we watched it. it Perfect. Was so good. Oh yeah. There's. I can't remember. Is it? I. 
I hadn't even seen Eight Mile, and like the the Same. portion the portion where he does the like the rap battle is like I thought was just so freaking funny at the time. I think the visual gag of being thrown out a window, falling down, and immediately standing up and walking is still just so great. I want to incorporate that somehow into That's something. It. <laughs> I have a dream. Oh, what's that? To have a dream. Went to sleep, woke up dead. Wait, how do you wake up dead? Because you were alive when you were to sleep. You can be in the bed and not be dead. <laughs> but you are in a bed full. That's how you woke up dead in the first place. <laughs> or, the, or the classic goes like, what, what? It's like, what happened? I don't know. We were, we were playing a fun game and I looked down and I saw Yahtzee. <laughs> oh my God. <sighs> All right, well. just, I'm getting to a point in my life I don't want more than just good sex. I know you want commitment. No, I want great sex. Yeah, you know that's what I've been saying. You want a guy who's like bam, bam, bam. You know what I'm saying? Did I say stop drawing? <laughs> <laughs> All the kids just staring at her. It's so fucking good. Oh, that is such a good. And then like when the door shuts and then someone smash. <laughs> who the fuck threw that? Yeah. <laughs> oh. oh God. <laughs> That's so good. Okay. Oh, another, another, speaking of, it's like a third movie in an ongoing franchise that probably should have stopped at a certain point. Yes. <laughs> let's, uh, let's move in. Nice segue. 